So I am going to introduce our next speaker, Professor Simon Eckerman. Simon is a senior professor of health economics at the Australian Health Services Research Institute, at the Sydney Business School and at the University of Wollongong. He was previously health economics professor at the Flinders University Centre for Clinical Change and healthcare research and senior health economist at the NHMRC Clinical Trials Centre. He's a chief investigator on competitive research grants, totalling more than 25 million Australian dollars since 2005 and actively sits on and undertakes guideline revision and health economics educational activities for the national decision bodies, including the Pharmaceutical Benefits Advisory Committee Economic Subcommittee, the National Palliative Care Trial Scientific Committee, the Prosthesis List Advisory Committee, the Victorian Cancer Agency and Food Standards ANZ, as well as various National Health and Medical Review Council grant review committees. So he's eminently um, qualified, I'm sure you'll understand, and I'm very grateful for him to find the time to come and speak to us today about the net benefits of uh, optimising medicinal cannabis net, net benefits. Please welcome Professor Simon Eckerman. It's, it's a bit of a hard act to follow after uh, seeing Helen Kapalos's film, which encapsulates so much in this debate. <clears throat> but what I want to try and get you to focus on is how to optimise uh, the use of medicinal cannabis, um, and particularly, as you'll see in the title here, optimise the net clinical benefit for patients, but also thinking about optimising the net benefit for the health system. Uh, and those <coughs> two objectives are what I'm going to go through uh, in this session. As you'll see in this session, uh, this is also very much the call made by the uh, US National Academy of Sciences in their review paper. So in terms of the research they suggested still needed to be undertaken, they suggested this was actually the most important research which needed to be undertaken um, in terms of synthesising the evidence which is there currently and optimising the policies around medicinal cannabis. So an overview, um, I'll first talk about the endocannabinoid system um, and the United <coughs> States National Academy of Science evidence um, in relation to uh, their... <coughs> Their review and the call uh, by the National Academy of Sciences for public health uh, evidence synthesis and health economic analysis uh, to optimise in practice and in policy. Second, I'll talk about how decision analytic and health economic principles and methods um, can help uh, have that clinical and policy optimisation in practice. And as part of that, I'll ostensibly be talking in the clinical setting about optimising net clinical benefit, given the scientific trial and practice evidence, and including the epidemiological evidence um, of relative symptom impact, side effect profiles, and dose response relationships, etc. And particularly with the entourage effects across terpene, uh, CBD, and THC varieties. And you'll give an excellent introduction to that this morning by my colleague, um, <coughs> Justin Sinclair. And several of the other people also touched on some of those issues, but we'll be looking at what the impacts are uh, for policy and how to optimise in practice settings and how to optimise in policy settings. What I'm also going to talk about, however, are things which haven't been addressed at all today, uh, and that's the cost um, and the cost savings which can be uh, garnered by optimally using medicinal cannabis 
And those are cost savings both in terms of the direct costs, things like pain relief medications, etc., but also the downstream cost savings from having more effective therapies. And particularly, I'm going to be talking about uh, pain medication in that case because that is, in fact, 90% of the use internationally. What I'll also, however, talk about is the energy use um, and <clears throat> process of cultivation and how important that is in terms of uh, the cost implications, but also um, in terms of the quality of medicinal cannabis. Because it turns out the terpene profiles um, are best <coughs> expressed when you have sunlight grown uh, medicinal cannabis, so not indoors, outdoors, or in greenhouses with um, access to sunlight. That then will lead into how we optimise the first key issue, which is the cultivation of medicinal cannabis. Because it turns out that you really need to have, uh, as practitioners, whether they be palliative practitioners um, or general practitioners or specialist practitioners, you need to have the appropriate palate of terpene-rich CBD and THC-rich uh, <coughs> varieties available. Um, and as Justin discussed, also many other things like flavonoids, etc., can influence that as well. But to actually optimise, you need to have the best profiles of those things. And you don't get them from pills. You don't get them from single-agent therapies. You don't get them from synthetics. You get them from uh, either plants directly or from full plant extracts. I'll then also be finally concluding by talking about the bottom line for Australian policy and practice. Um, and how we need to be shifting from what we're currently doing, which is a lot of uh, politicising around access, um, and indeed bizarrely uh, giving the whole process to the Office of Drug Control and various organisations, rather than what they're doing in other countries such as Canada, uh, Israel and the Netherlands, which is treating it as part of a health department and making very clear that you're trying to maximise net benefit. Net benefit for your patients and net benefit to the health system. So let's start with the evidence from the US National Academy of Sciences, and you've already had this a uh, couple of times today. What I'm going to highlight is the bit at the bottom in a minute. Um, that's really the most important thing on my slide, which differs from what you've seen on slides today. But just to uh, summarise, so we've got conclusive and substantive evidence for medicinal cannabis benefit in treatment of chronic pain in adults, which turns out is about 90% of use internationally, antiemetics for chemotherapy-induced nausea, multiple sclerosis, spasticity symptoms. Okay, and that's highest level conclusive and substantive evidence. We also have moderate levels of evidence for short-term sleeping disturbance, uh, fibromyalgia, uh, chronic pain with MS, and emerging evidence in increasing appetite and decreasing weight loss in AIDS patients, and addressing Tourette's syndrome, anxiety, PTSD, dementia, and eye pressure and glaucoma. Now in this space, of course, we know that for many years it's been almost impossible to run trials. So the lower level evidence, um, you need to uh, certainly be looking at, uh, and certainly in terms of the, the future research, um, it's, it's, it's key that if there's promising signs initially, it's probably going to um, actually have a positive uh, signal eventually. So unlike many other things where things have been researched to death um, and you haven't had the barriers that medicinal cannabis has um, with the prohibition since 1937, we um, here have some promising signs for many, many diseases. The thing at the bottom, however, is what I'm going to focus on in my talk. So apart from uh, collating that evidence and pointing to where you had substantive evidence, moderate evidence and lower level evidence, 
They also had a call for public health and health economics evidence synthesis, uh, for optimal policy responses and evidence translation to practice. And the link there is, is the link to the part um, that, that, that deals with that. So in doing that, and that's got to be the key objective um, of any health system or indeed anybody trying to optimise um, the use of medicinal cannabis, we really need to be thinking about some decision analytic principles here. So we've got what we in um, a general format would call our new strategy relative to current practice. So here I've put as the examples the one we're really thinking about, medicinal cannabis versus, for instance, opioid therapy. And we have the pathways along which uh, these things are going to run in terms of the health system, um, and we have the health effects associated with those pathways, um, as well as, and I want to highlight these things, the palliative care domains. So the health effects are the survival, um, the morbidity effects, the symptom relief, and indeed, in terms of comparing with opioid therapy, clearly reduction in side effects, uh, reduction <coughs> in um, all sorts of issues around um, <coughs> opioid therapy leading to addiction, etc. But in terms of palliative domains, what are the palliative domains which are important alongside the health system domains? Well, they're things like the ability to finalise affairs, the ability to be with families and friends in their community of choice, which is usually at home, and the ability to minimise family distress in palliative processes. And I've put those in there because, in reality, in the compassion and access populations we're talking about, a lot of them are palliative. We also, along those pathways, have resource use and cost, um, and their resource use and cost associated with the direct therapies, and as we're going to see, medicinal cannabis has a much lower cost than, for instance, opioid therapies, if you grow it optimally, uh, which turns out to be outdoors or in uh, greenhouses. And we also have cost savings associated with the follow-up cost uh, whether they be in hospital, in specialist settings, but also thinking about, particularly with the uh, baby boomer ageing population, aged care um, and a whole series of other services in, uh, in ageing. So those are the kind of frameworks that we need to think about if we're going to do this in an evidence-based way and we're going to synthesise the evidence in a meaningful way so we're looking at the effects, we're looking at the costs, we're looking at the palliative domains and the health domains. And just to highlight some of those palliative care preferences, and I, I've sat for the last 15 years on the National Palliative Care Collaborative, and we've actually run the biggest palliative care trials in the world. Um, and surprise, surprise, we've shown that in fact most of the things we're using are not effective. So ketamine, um, I did a study with Janet Hardy showing that in fact that's, uh, that's worse than, um, than nothing at all in terms of the side effects and not actually having pain relief. Um, and that was placebo-controlled, of course, and they had rescue medication, et cetera, so a very ethical trial. But nobody had ever really looked at things relative to placebo um, with ketamine, and it turns out it was actually worse than placebo. Um, we've also done a lot of studies, um, and probably the most uh, recent one is, is the one uh, that you can look up, which I haven't actually referred to here, which is led by Mira Agar in delirium uh, patients, et cetera. Again, we actually showed the antipsychotics uh, were dangerous, actively dangerous, and actually caused more deaths, as well as side effects, etc. Okay, what I'm really painting a picture of here is um, 
the, in the palliative framework, we don't really have good therapies currently. And actually, we've got far less evidence for most of these therapies than we have for medicinal cannabis. And yet, we're using these other therapies um, and with, with, with detriment. So the trial evidence, when it's come out, has shown they're actually being used with detriment. The other thing I really wanted to highlight, however, is the studies we've done in the Palliative Care Collaborative to look at the preferences of patients. So the preferences of palliative patients. And they are for, firstly, finalising their affairs, and they normally divide those into their personal and financial affairs. And the financial affairs isn't about the money, it's about not leaving a mess for their children um, when you dig, dig deep. They also talk about being where they want to be um, in the process of finalising their affairs, which is usually at home, not always, and there's a nice reference there by Mira Agar, the 2008 reference, uh, where some prefer to be in hospital settings, etc. but in fact the vast majority it's, it is uh, in a home setting. And it's about who they prefer to be with, which is usually their family and friends rather than medicos, strangely enough, in the palliative process. And of course, we have many therapies at the moment which drag people away from their families, um, have side effects which prevent them from finalising their affairs and cause a lot of distress to families and friends. And I'm painting this picture to you because I think it's important when you consider medicinal cannabis, it can address many of those palliative issues just as it addresses the health issues that you've heard about so far. So palliative preferences do not generally support expensive medicalised therapies such as radiotherapy and chemotherapy requiring in-hospital treatment. And we're talking about palliative setting here, not generally, but in a palliative setting. And with side effects that interfere with the ability of patients to finalise their affairs, be in the community of choice for that process and the place of death they want to be in. And distress the families and carers. So rather, palliative preferences support options using, usually enabling finalising affairs at home and with greater family involvement. Those are the two key things palliative patients will tell you. So how do we um, synthesise the evidence? Now there's a diagram here which I developed along with John Symes for the PBAC, but in fact for almost any decision-making body you want to look at. And the key thing is from trials we get evidence of relative treatment effect, and those can be individual trials or some sort of systematic review evidence, meta-analyses or indirect comparisons where you don't have direct trials, etc. But that treatment effect is modifying the baseline risk of the population. And it's that which gives us our absolute effect differences. And you get absolute effect differences for benefits, um, in other words, symptom relief, etc., but also side effects. And you combine the side effects and benefits and you get to a notion of net clinical benefit. So net clinical benefit is trading off the benefits and harms. What net benefit is, is an extension of net clinical benefit to allow for resource use and cost. So it's the value of this net clinical benefit less uh, the incremental cost. And that gives you the notion of net benefit. So net clinical benefit is the objective for patients. Net benefit is actually the objective for the health system. Okay? You want to maximise the value of the effects you're getting, the incremental effects, relative to the incremental costs of the health system, because of course you don't have unlimited resources in your health system. You have to make some choices. But the key thing is policy decisions all come down to maximising net clinical benefit for patients and maximising net benefit to the health system. So just to confirm those thoughts in your minds from the diagram, the net clinical benefit is often also called delta E, the change in effect. And it's the change in absolute effectiveness, not the efficacy. So it's not a relative treatment effect, it's the absolute change. 
in uh, whatever the measure is, whether it's mortality, quality-adjusted life years, morbidity, or whatever. And you trade off the harms and benefits in the population of interest and the indication for the jurisdiction of interest, in our case, Australia. Key, of course, is that the population uh, can change in terms of their risk factors, their tolerance, their side effects, etc. And what we're really pointing to here is ideally personalised medicine, okay? which, in fact, medicinal cannabis is ideal for. Um, titrating up to uh, a level of symptom relief while uh, minimising the level of harm, etc. And harm, in reality, only in, uh, <coughs> and only potentially harm, in things where you have uh, THC concentrations. So we're looking at absolute, not relative treatment effect differences, and it's the baseline risk modified by the relative treatment effect. So you need to know, of course, in terms of some harms, um, and particularly with things like opioids, but in, in reality a whole series of other things, you know, moving well beyond medicinal cannabis to, to general consideration, um, about both the harms and the benefits, the baseline risks that you're modifying. Because your trials are only ever going to give you relative treatment effects, you need to be modifying the patient in front of me, what are their risk factors, what is their history, um, how do we expect to see the net benefit being maximised in this individual patient or net clinical benefit um, in, in a provider uh, terms? Okay, so we need the best evidence of relative tracks from ideally from RCTs, but the best evidence of baseline risk is from the epidemiological data at a, at a population level and from an individual uh, clinician level or um, <coughs> health provider level, it's the patient in front of me. What are their risk factors? Net benefit is simply extending this to allow for the value of the incremental effects less their incremental cost. And where that's greater than zero, we say that we support the new therapy in terms of being efficient and cost effective, because net benefit also has this lovely link with cost effectiveness. If, you're cost, if you've got something which is cost effective, it has a net benefit greater than zero. If it's not cost effective, its net benefit is less than zero. So it gives us a lovely way of uh, of de <coughs> delineating between what is cost-effective and what's not, not cost-effective and something understandable, more importantly, goes back to net clinical benefit and its value, less the resource use and cost implications. So that's a very quick introduction to health economics. I know you're nurses and you mightn't be interested in health economics, but a small amount of knowledge is actually very valuable because it's not all that complicated, really. We're saying net clinical benefit, less the resource use, um, and their cost implications gives us the net benefit overall that we want for the health system. What importantly it also points to is that health economics needs to take a system-wide, big-picture perspective of health policy impacts. We're not talking about one randomised controlled trial. We're talking about the trial evidence being um, <coughs> applied to a population. We're talking about the resource use uh, of that population and relative to what they're currently getting. Okay, so coming back to our original picture, medicinal cannabis relative to opiates, which is the most prevalent situation we're talking about here. Okay, so allowing for the system-wide costs and effects, because we're allowing for the downstream costs and effects, not just what is the cost up front of the medicinal cannabis relative to the opiate in our case. Okay, to do this robustly and to get quality use of medicines, a term which was used, um, I think, actually, <coughs> after my question, rather in vain by somebody over here before, um, we need to be having robust methods, okay? robust methods for estimating the incremental uh, absolute effects, the incremental absolute resource use and cost, and optimising them. 
And we need to do that for both policies as well as the types of therapies we can have here. Okay, because they're just all types of strategies we can adopt to try and optimise net benefit, both the policies we adopt and the therapies we employ in practice. So in policy settings such as medicinal cannabis, we need to focus on maximising net benefit in evidence synthesis and the policy implications for regulation, research and practice. Because all those things are joint. Okay? You get joint decisions being made about research, regulation and practice. And that's what we've got in medicinal cannabis. It's also, um, as we'll lead into, why we really need to be looking at N of 1 precision medicine trials, okay? where we're optimising for the individual patient um, and their needs as they present in front of us. And of course there's evidence here and the call from the United, <coughs> United States National Academy of Sciences and the Health Economics from Theory to Practice text, which is what that reference is there. So that Health Economics from Theory to Practice text, um, I'm not going to test you as Justin said on this diagram, <laughs> but when you do get a link to this you'll see that the different parts of the book describe assessment of incremental net benefit, um, whether we need further research, which is the value of information, uh, or the value of, of getting further research, um, <clears throat> or whether we have enough evidence and we can regulate and we're trying to optimise in the policy and regulation regulatory framework the net benefit in practice. If we do need further research, um, then should that be a local or global trial is a big key question, which I've done a lot of research in. Um, and indeed the methods I've, I've identified there have been adopted worldwide. Um, and then coming back to the original question, do we need to modify the actual question itself? And the questions are normally in the PICO framework that some of you may be uh, familiar with, the patient indication, comparator and outcome. Okay, so coming back to defining what is the question we're trying to maximise net benefit for. And you can do that for any given patient population. At a policy level, however, it's about all the populations who are going to be affected. Um, so it's not just about the patient population. But all that's in the Health Economics from Theory to Practice book. So how can health economics help medicinal cannabis net benefit optimization? Well, I want to highlight here, and from the last slide, it's more than cost-effectiveness analysis. Okay, so in informing medicinal cannabis policy, research and practice decisions, it includes things around the cultivation and manufacture of alternative medicinal cannabis therapies. And that's very clear when you start to look at the entourage effects, etc. We need to be having terpene, CBD, THC rich, and indeed things rich in flavonoids, etc. Because unless we do, we're not going to get the best expression. And you'll see in a minute the evidence is, is particularly in pain management, is very conclusive um, that you get much better symptom relief, you get much lower side effects, um, and you get much better dose response uh, as soon as you have entourage effects. But importantly, at a policy level, we've got joint research, reimbursement and regulatory decisions which are going on here. And we want to be optimising across those joint decisions, not treating them as individual silos because they have impacts on each other. Okay? You can't partialise them because then you end up with all sorts of perverse incentives. You have to look at them jointly. Okay? And there's one thing I'm known for internationally, it's defining the methods which do that optimally. So the health economics from theory of practice gives you the way of optimally informing joint research reimbursement and regulatory decisions. Indeed, it's also the basis of the course that I'll show you at the end um, that we're running in November 22 to 24 in Wollongong. OK, 
Okay, so we've got these joint research reimbursement and regulatory decisions across health and related systems, because we want to be, in, in the case particularly of palliative care and chronic disease management, etc., also looking at the aged care impacts, okay, because there's benefits, huge benefits to be had in those settings as well. So it's not just the health impacts, it's aged care, etc., and clearly in palliative care, which is actually between the two as well. We also, however, in this, in this space and in many other spaces, have a whole series of political economy issues. Okay, issues around community preferences being represented in the decision processes. Okay, and in particular, palliative preferences. Why are palliative preferences not being represented in these processes? And you can really look at the process that Lucy uh, has engaged in as being, let's get patient preferences uh, represented in these decision-making processes. These are, in general, the palliative uh, pre uh, preferences that I talked about earlier. Okay, and that's in, in early childhood where you have people dying as well as in, in later. And of course we have, delightfully, some curative elements as well. Well, curative in terms of uh, treatment which reduces spasms, etc. But most of what we're talking about is palliative here. It's palliative, it's chronic disease management, etc. Okay, and we want to be creating the appropriate incentives across institutions and providers. And particularly in this space, as David Caldercott so beautifully represented in um, Helen Kapalos's film, um, around drug companies and their vested interests, not overriding the community's interests and the community's preferences and palliative preferences. So there's a whole series of methods that I've developed which are in that Health Economics from Theory to cor Practice course. Um, I'll just highlight a couple of them here. We've already talked about the downstream impacts, needing to allow for those. Optimal joint research and reimbursement design, their value of information methods, which I developed with Andy Willen, who's the top biostatistician in the world who, in Canada. Um, unbiased evidence translation, synthesis and ex extrapolation, which again I've developed with both by myself and with Michael Curry, who sits on the PBAC and TGA now, and Andy Willen, who's from Canada again. And very importantly, because we're looking at entourage effects and we're trying to optimise across many potential strategies that you could have and many potential varieties that you could be using, um, you need to have multiple strategy methods. And again, in these areas, myself and Andy Willen and also Tim Coelli in terms of efficiency measurement and Nikki McCaffrey, who's a PhD student of mine, um, have developed the best methods internationally for those. And the key thing in those multiple strategy methods is you identify very quickly from the millions and indeed billions of potential combinations uh, which are the key ones okay, that you should be testing and you can test in any one trials. And then finally, research on better use of existing programs and technologies where in fact medicinal cannabis is key because we see that medicinal cannabis can be produced at factor cost. Okay? It's a plant. You can't patent the plant. <laughs> you can patent individual uh, aspects of the plant if you, if you do pharmacological uh, things, but it actually reduces the effect of the plant and increases the side effects. So the implications for optimising medicinal cannabis policy and practice. So optimising net clinical benefit and health system net benefit should be the basis for medicinal cannabis access, regulation, <coughs> and in meeting the US uh, call for um, optimising evidence synthesis, policy responses and evidence translation. Um, and as in Canada, Netherlands and Israel, it means it should be a health department issue. It shouldn't be an Office of Drug Control issue. Because Office of Drug Control, I can assure you, don't have an objective of maximising net benefit. Okay? And we can see that, and the question I raised here was related to that, 
in the fact that what do we have access to currently? It's groups with the lowest level evidence who have basically only CBD who are getting access and the people with the highest level evidence in pain management um, and anti-emetic, et cetera, are not getting access. So it's clear it's not an evidence-based process. It's not about maximising net benefit. You need to make it part of the health department as they have done in Canada, the Netherlands, um, <coughs> and indeed in Israel, to actually get it as, a, as the objective, maximising net benefit. Okay, I'll skip over some of these because these represent some of the evidence which has already been presented. But we're basically saying it's mainly in pain and chronic disease that you have about 90% of access internationally. The entourage effects are obviously key. Um, and what I will focus a bit on is the trial evidence to support that as well. So we've got these references by Galilee, Russo, um, and a couple of others as well, Machulam himself from back in the 80s and 90s, etc. Highly that you get entourage effects between terpenes, cannabinoids, both CBD and THC, and many other cannabinoids. There's uh, a couple of hundred cannabinoids. <coughs> and also, the various flavonoids, etc., can be involved in that. But the important thing is those things in combination, in other words, kept in their plant form um, and combined, as in uh, plant forms versus vitamins, allow you to magnify the therapeutic effects and impacts and reduce the side effects. And most importantly, uh, in terms of the study here at Galilee, you get a much better dose response. Okay? So the dose response when you have the entourage effect uh, is linear. You don't get this tailing off uh, that you do when you just have single agent therapies. Now importantly, within that, one should also remember that um, the endocannabinoid system is quite clever in that the endocannabinoid system produces things on demand. Okay, it's got a retrograde action, and so you basically uh, can't overdose. Okay, it's why you don't get cannabinoid-related deaths, okay, because you can't really overdose. It up and down regulates. Okay, so you've got, you've got those lovely, lovely response mechanisms in there as well. And that, of course, is emphasised when you have the entourage effect. Okay, importantly, those things are all represented in the really hard clinical trial evidence. And the biggest trial which has been done in pain populations, the most important populations, is Johnson et al. 2010. And delightfully, it was a three-arm study. So you had terpene, CBD, and THC um, <coughs> in one arm. So terpene-rich and CBD to THC one-to-one. -one. In the second arm, you had THC alone, and the third arm, opioids. Okay, and importantly, what was shown is that you had basically more than double the effect relative to opioids, 43% having significant pain, and significant pain was a 30% uh, reduction in pain, versus 21% with opioids, very high odds ratio, highly statistically significant. But you also had almost the same effect relative to THC. So we're getting double the therapeutic effect, essentially relative to either opioids or THC, when you have CBD, THC, and terpenes, um, and indeed less side effects as well, okay, relative to THC or opioids alone. The other type of options out there in pain management are things like ketamine, but as I've alluded to, the study we did with PACS, with the, the Hardy et al. study, published in the Journal of um, uh, Cancer and Clinical Epidemiology, showed that definitively it was harmful. Okay, in terms of the side effects and not having benefit in terms of pain relief relative to placebo and rescue medication. Okay, so that's the evidence, and that also supports the vast majority of what's going on internationally. 
because internationally, 90% of the uh, people in the US who have access to medicinal cannabis have pain as a symptom, and 70% is their primary symptom. Similarly, in Israel, um, we have pain as, as the primary symptoms, while that is direct, chronic pain, it's also the, direct, the indirect in Parkinson's, multiple sclerosis, Crohn's disease, um, and other chronic pain and post-traumatic stress disorders. Okay? And indeed also in the cancer patients. So globally, what does this mean globally? Well, globally, 36.9% of the revenue currently for medicinal cannabis is related directly to chronic pain. So just directly to chronic pain itself. And that global market is currently worth 11.4 billion. That's projected to grow to US 56 billion by 2025, only in eight years' time. Okay, and that's both because you're getting ageing uh, effects, in other words, the ageing of the population, and as more jurisdictions come on board in terms of medicinal cannabis uh, needs to be used. There's some nice quotes there from the MJA, from uh, Mather et al. in 2013. The benefits of cannabinoid pharmacotherapy should be, can be substantial. The risks are generally modest and must be weighed against those of not treating the symptoms or of alternative treatments. And that's particularly true of opioids or ketamine, given the evidence I've just given you. Okay, okay we've gone through the palliative care preferences. Um, to provide appropriate pathways, we need to uh, look at what currently we're using, and typically it's opioid therapies, and we've got a big problem with opioid therapies, which have been highlighted um, <coughs> pretty much universally, um, but particularly in the, the processes in the last few years around the need to get people off op opioid therapies. Okay. And this is the natural alternative, which doesn't have those addiction issues, doesn't have the side effects, and most importantly, in terms of the um, evidence out there, um, we're getting opioid sparing. Okay. So 33% reduction um, in terms of um, <coughs> opioid-related deaths and similarly in terms of opioid-related hospitalisations. Um, and as Justin talked to and, and are in several of these slides, so that's down the bottom here, um, we're also getting a, a 8 to 13% reduction in a whole series of pharmaceutical use, which is, of course, why the pharmaceutical industry is so worried about medicinal cannabis, because we can produce for almost nothing and it's giving you better effects and reducing their uh, use of the, the current therapies. Um, okay. So in terms of optimising that clinical benefit, and this is the most important probably for you as nurses and for healthcare practitioners and physicians, etc., patient net clinical benefit for medicinal cannabis practice and research is optimised, the symptom relief maximised and side effects minimised, where terpenes, CBT and TH-rich varieties are grown, precision medicine use, and varieties prided to individual patient daily function needs and symptom control. That daily function needs is that you typically give CBD rich during the day and THC rich at night. Okay? Doesn't interfere the psychoactive elements then with daily functioning, um, and you get better sleep and pain management at night for a sustained period. So typically CBD rich sativa in the daytime and THC rich and deeper at night, and that's typically um, because sativa um, has alertness qualities, Indica has exactly the opposite. Also, you optimise, and you can see Tick and Olam's various tables, which are, um, I have various copies of if people want to come and get them from me afterwards. 
You can also optimise by mode of administration, and as we've seen, vaporisation is usually preferred as the in inhalation route, if that's your route. Um, and that's in both in terms of the efficiency, you get much greater bioavailability than you do from smoking, um, and you can only start to approach with smoking if you're a very experienced smoker. Um, and in reality, we don't want people to smoke at all, because it's um, So vaporisation clearly is what you should be using if it's inhalation, but you should also remember that suppositories and other forms of um, uh, roots give you longer lasting effects, while not immediate. So in acute settings, vaporisation, if you want longer lasting things, things like suppositories. Um, and also oils, where you can get slightly longer duration, and capsules with ground cannabis blossom heads uh, until D, and I hate that word, decarboxylated. I always have trouble saying that one. And that gives you about six to eight hours, okay, rather than the four hours you get um, with uh, inhalation. Clearly, you also want to be optimising in terms of dosing, and that's by THC equivalent with biability uh, of the root. So you identify the root first, optimal to the patient, and then what is the dosing given that root. Um, and there's various biovailability tables, which indeed David Caldercott went through extensively um, at the medicinal cannabis course we ran in Melbourne uh, earlier this year. Um, but those things are also available if you look at the ticamolum tables, etc. And then titration up to tolerance to maximise net clinical benefit. Um, and net clinical benefit, of course, remember, is the value of the effects, in other words, the benefits relative to the harms. Okay, so you would never titrate to the point of harm. You would titrate up to the point of benefit. And if they're getting symptom relief and they've had no harms, fantastic. If they're starting to get any, any kind of uh, uh, issues with harms, then obviously you modify a bit. And of course, if you're not getting any effect, you go on to a re regimen change. And those things, again, are all very well described in the Tickamolan tables. So here the references are both to the section on medicinal cannabis in the Health Economics from Theory to Practice book, which is the whole of chapter 12 on successful ageing, and particularly section 12.6, explicitly on medicinal cannabis. Um, the Tickamolan tables, and then these other references to uh, entourage effects, etc. So in terms of the Australian health system and net benefit, in other words, allowing for the costs, um, the estimate um, <coughs> is that we would save about $730 million, uh, in terms of the cost uh, relative to current pain medications, and that's just the direct costs. Then we'd also save um, uh, a, a whole series of other costs um, associated with the downstream effect. Okay, and the downstream effects here are the better management uh, that you get of pain, and particularly in palliative populations, the evidence is you get about a $13,000 uh, reduction in, in those pain uh, medication, uh, sorry, in, in, um, in having palliative patients not being treated in hospital, staying at home. Um, oh, there's a whole lot of other stuff there. This is the stuff I'm talking about now. And so we get about a $3 billion uh, cost saving by uh, 2050, and indeed a 1.2 to 1.3 cost saving now. And that's combined of 730 million you'd save um, directly in terms of pain medications and 500 million from downstream better pain management and reduction in hospitalisation, particularly in palliative populations, but also more generally. Down the bottom, note we also get the export potential. Okay? If we actually have terpene CBTHC rich, we're not just doing this domestically, we'd actually have the opportunity to lead the world. Okay, we have the best growing conditions of anywhere uh, internationally for all the types of terpene-rich things we need to grow, the best sunlight conditions. 
um, and we can grow those outdoors. Others are restricted to growing them in greenhouses. Um, note you don't get, with indoor growing, the best terpenes, so it costs a lot more, huge amounts of energy use, um, and you, you're, you're getting uh, worse outcomes, so lower quality. So it's very clear we should be growing outdoors or in greenhouses. Um, and there might be a final conclusion. So in Australia, outdoor and greenhouse cultivation of terpene, CBD and TH-rich medicinal cannabis varieties, and note with good, <coughs> good agricultural practice and good manufacturing practice, and those things have been managed certainly very well both in Holland and in Israel, in the main. So those things are established, and again, Tikkanolam is a good place to start looking at how you do that, having mother plants traceable to all the other plants that you have in production, etc. Um, if we do that, that enables robust, robust precision medicine research. If you don't do that, we're not really undertaking the best research that we can. Um, Optimising varieties by individual patient system needs, risks and benefits, uh, and indeed the net benef clinical benefit. And the mode of administration and titration, as we've, as we've seen, which you can also optimise to the individual patient's needs, um, and customised for their response and tolerance. We secondly have medical practitioner um, allowed in practice to do that, so not just in trial settings, but also in practice, and indeed those two things can be combined with N of 1 studies and precision medicine approaches that way, um, and particularly relative to our current therapies, so opioids, ketamine, etc., in pain management with disastrous consequences um, for the health system. Thirdly, we get palliative population ability to finalise affairs in their community of choice with who they want to be with, which is a big key thing in the populations we're talking about. Fourthly, in terms of the cost, it saves about $10 per day directly in pain management costs and about $13,000 per patient who you, um, with better pain management, prevent from having to go to hospital. And indeed, related to number three, having better uh, palliation anyway in the <coughs> on the domains they're interested in, finalising their affairs, being where they want to be and being where they want to be. And finally, and fifth, we ensure quality controlled Australian medicinal supply, which is uh, critical obviously to um, <coughs> the palliative populations, but any of the patient, compassion access patient populations, while creating scope for future export markets and minimising energy use. Because okay, we don't want to have pharmaceutical companies doing it indoors, using huge amounts of energy to grow the stuff, uh, creating suboptimal um, things which are either synthesised or single agent therapies, don't have entourage effects don't maximise the quality for your patients, um, but cost a lot of money um, when they have their markup, um, and um, lead to all sorts of downstream problems as well. Okay, there's a few bottom lines um, there, but um, in the interest of time, uh, <coughs> I'll, I'll probably stop it there. Uh, but one, one key thing which I'll highlight again is we really need to follow the route in terms of what you can do and what uh, people generally need to do. They need to keep reminding the government of what is optimal and how much they're losing by not going down the optimal route. And indeed, that optimal route is merely using what they should be doing in terms of health department uh, <coughs> use of medicinal cannabis. In other words, being part of the health department, not the Office of Drug Control, because then it's very clear it's maximising that clinical benefit. Oh, and there's a link to the course there, which we're running 22nd to 24th of November, but I've got some flyers for anybody who wants a hard copy of that. Thank you.